Hi, Kate. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered, Episode 4. We're a podcast about the politics of climate change for the 99%, and we're hosted by Descent Magazine. It's all true. And this episode on Hot and Bothered, we'll get a taste for what the global 99% is up to in the fight against fossil fuels. That's right. So, for example, our listeners can't see me right now, but I'm wearing a truly classic T-shirt that says, in Brazilian Portuguese, Agua sim, lucro não. Water, yes. Profits, no. And I do have to admit, it's better designed than most political t-shirts I've seen, and I've seen a few. Thanks, Kate. And it's a timely t-shirt also, because in a minute, I'll be saying a few words about the opening ceremony and its climate change theme from the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And then we'll hear from you, Kate, and your conversation with Ken Henshaw about the politics of oil and electricity in Nigeria. That's right. Yeah, see, the problem for me with Donald Trump being such a narcissist who keeps saying America first is that I find myself uh, spending all of my time thinking about America. And I really do need a break from talking about this country. Like more of a break than talking about Canada? (laughs) Even more of a break than that. And uh, one last thing, Kate, before we get to the rest of the show, uh, I think you've got a life event of your own to share and for me to toast. That's true. I do. I've just started a year-long fellowship at In These Times magazine in print and online, where I'll be covering the 2016 election and its aftermath. I'll be writing full-time about Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and how social movements are fighting their way through this blazing trash fire that is American democracy. Oh, and it smells so good. Um, So, in fact, you know, given the situation, Kate, I almost feel like I should be toasting you with ibuprofen and not champagne, uh, but more on my idea for a bubbly painkiller pill in another episode. Well, as always, there are more than a few things we could use a cocktail for. And one of them might be the Olympics happening right now. So in the midst of a soft coup, a Zika virus outbreak, and more is a gigantic sporting event that costs billions of dollars to put on. But they also, for some reason, talk about climate change. Daniel's going to tell us more and maybe audition to be Rachel Maddow's replacement with a fiery, hot and bothered audio op-ed. Rio de Janeiro Olympic Games opening ceremony was framed with a first subtle and then in-your-face call to climate action. The awkwardly didactic section at the end of the ceremony featured graphics of urban areas being inundated, disappearing glaciers, spiking temperatures, and all of it set to urgent, anxious, instrumental music. Is there a way out? Será? Será que tem jeito? Then we saw a young black Brazilian teenager in sneakers and shorts and a backpack out on the main stage where he encountered a green sapling growing out of the ground and he fell in love with it. And all of a sudden there was this kind of sprawling spoken word voiceover with the green breaking through the asphalt, the green counterposed against the gray of the city. And we saw all these triumphant images of nature and forests and waters as the classical music really started to swell. It was the ultimate total cliché of the environment, represented as a landscape of purity, battling back against the grey, oppressive city. I sit down on the ground of the nation's capital at five in the afternoon and fondle with my fingers this precarious form. It's ugly, but it's a flower. It broke through the asphalt, tedium, disgust and hatred. Now, I've just got to say a few things about this as someone who has just finished his PhD on urban climate politics and on housing movements uh, in New York as well as in Sao Paulo, which, of course, is the other big city in Brazil. Now, Brazil has made huge strides in slashing greenhouse gas emissions by slowing deforestation in the Amazon. And so it does make some sense in Brazil to focus in on climate change with a message about trees. Indeed, there's been some backsliding on this issue in the last few years, and with a soft coup now in effect in Brazil, there is a likelihood that climate change will be sidelined even further uh, and deforestation kind of get started again. So all this being the case, I did really appreciate the reminder of what Brazil has achieved in terms of deforestation and preventing that. But at another level, this was really the wrong message for Brazil. As Brazil develops economically, it's increasingly causing emissions let's say, the old-fashioned way, just like we do in rich countries in the north, turning out new cars, 
building dirty factories, building out new coal plants to add increased electricity. So just take cars, which is a classic and really core urban issue in Brazil. Direct emissions from road transportation for passengers, which is to say driving, not trucking, those emissions are set to increase by 50% from 2010 out to 2020. Now, this is mainly because of new cars being driven, not just by prosperous middle-class Brazilians, but increasingly working-class Brazilians who don't want to take buses that are severely underfunded, buses that are stuck in traffic that, and of course, caused by there being so many cars. So Sao Paulo and Rio are pressing ahead with plans to extend bus routes, uh, dedicated bus routes and the subway, but the country is also still subsidizing car sales as a strategy for economic growth, and at the same time, again, way too little investment in mass transit infrastructure and other urban improvements. So the thing is that green stuff in the old-fashioned sense, like we saw in the ceremony, trees and animals and water, it's not the opposite or opposed to gray things like cement and steel and buses and tall buildings. On the contrary, building dense, more energy-efficient cities with public housing near mass transit, this is a crucial strategy to bringing down emissions and to preserving forests and oceans. Cities are also where people live. That's where inequality is really taking off, and dealing with those issues is not at all trivial, even from the perspective of climate change. So urban gray policies aren't the opposite of green climate politics. The city is actually a strategic site for climate action. Now, that would be a challenging but worthy topic for the kind of narrative and creative extravaganza that is an Olympic opening ceremony, especially one directed by Fernando Morales, whose movie City of God was all about the race and class politics of Rio's favelas. Of course, I'm not saying that for urban Brazilians or poor Brazilians or black Brazilians, air quality matters and traffic matters, but trees and forests don't. It's all important. The problem is that there's just this huge gap opening up now between a kind of canned, cliched, ultra-narrow symbolism of Mother Earth and of nature, and then the actual reality of climate politics. Gray urban justice issues aren't a sideshow. I would argue that they belong, actually, on center stage. Yeah, there's always going to be a gap between the simplified image and the politics. But at what point does the gap grow so big that it's not just annoying, but also counterproductive? That's the question that's got me hot and bothered this month. Thanks for that, Daniel. I feel enraged, but also somehow hopeful. I think I know what you mean. Next up, I'm talking with Ken Henshaw. Ken is the Senior Programs Manager at Social Action, which is based in Port Harcourt, Nigeria. Ken's work with Social Action sits at the juncture of two things near and dear to the hearts of Hot and Bothered listeners. On the one hand, he's working with communities that are fighting back against fossil fuel companies' rampant environmental and human rights abuses in the Niger Delta, and that's also an area that's been hit hard by the climate impacts being fueled by oil and gas companies. And on another related front, I understand that Ken is also involved in efforts to stop the privatization of the country's electric utilities and for democratically owned renewables. Now, Kate, could you give us a little more context for what's happening there before we meet Ken? Sure. So over half of Nigerians lack access to electricity, and many are left to generate their own power. That, of course, depends on what kinds of funds you have available and where you happen to live. To make matters worse, the Nigerian government has been opening the door to privatize the country's energy, leaving decisions on how much power costs to shareholders with a profit motive. Privatization has led to higher prices, blackouts, job loss, and union busting, all backed by governments like the UK's, which has supported the privatization process to the tune of some 140 million pounds. Neoliberalism really knows no bounds. It sure doesn't. Uh, So to find out more, let's talk to Ken Henshaw. Ken, thanks so much for joining us on Hot and Bothered. So uh, first off, just wanted uh, to see if you could give us a sense for what the role of the fossil fuel industry is in Nigeria and in the Niger River Delta specifically? Oh, well, um, of course, you know that Nigeria is one of the, the richest um, exporters, the largest exporters of crude oil in the world. A couple of years ago, we were sixth place on the, on the, on the table of crude oil exporters globally, and that puts us you know, right there on the map. And about 90% of the revenues, federal revenues of Nigeria depend on export of crude oil. Um, 
And the oil companies play a very major role. I mean, we've got BP and, and the rest of them drilling actively in Nigeria um, in a joint venture partnership with the federal government of Nigeria. And we've got all the major oil company players there. So, yeah, fossil fuel plays a very great part in Nigeria's um, political life, social life, cultural life. Everything is tied to fossil fuel. It's the main economic earner. Um, and that is why whenever any argument comes up around issues of um, um, weaning ourselves from dependence on fossil fuel, it's always very problematic because it's inconceivable for the ruling elite in Nigeria to even think about beginning to dissociate the Nigerian state, the Nigerian economy from fossil fuel dependence, crude oil dependence. It's unthinkable for them. But I must also mention that despite the fact that Nigeria is on the map of crude oil exporters globally, the people in the country remain continuously poor. In fact, get, the more fossil fuel we extract and sell in the global market, it seems the more Nigerians get poor, poorer for it. Um, recently, a, a report released um, indicates that Nigerians are among the poorest people on, in the globe. 100, out of 170 million Nigerians, about 70% live below the poverty line. Now, the poverty line is people who live below about $1 daily. So we have got 70% of 170 million people living on less than $1 a day, making the country one of the poorest in the world. So you have got, on the one hand, a, a country that is rich in fossil fuel extraction and sales, but its population is one of the poorest in the world. And to the best of our knowledge, the fossil fuel industry has not provided any tangible benefit for the majority of the Nigerian people. So who's benefiting from fossil fuel extraction in Nigeria then? Who's getting the money from all of this extraction that's happening? Yeah, well, yeah fossil fuel extraction has, um, has helped the Nigerian state, if we could call it a help, has created an elite of uh, stupendously rich characters. It's few very, very rich billionaires in Nigeria, um, has made politicians exceptionally rich, has made members of the legislature very rich, has made uh, politicians very, very rich. And these have been the major gainers of Nigeria's, Nigeria's uh, oil extraction. On the other hand, it has made the oil companies very, very, very rich. Within the framework of the Nigerian societies, people who work in the oil industry, especially the expatriates, are considered, you know, the richest, they are the, they are the, they are the cream de la cream, the finest, the richest of the society. So the oil industry has made politicians, corrupt politicians, I must add, very rich, and has also made the oil companies very, very rich because it derives, due to the joint venture partnership they have with the Nigerian state, it derives so much, so much, you know, profits from oil extraction and sales in Nigeria, and they have been the highest earners. And down the line are the majority of Nigerians who are the record of the earth, so to speak. That 70% of Nigerians who have no connection to the oil industry that will be the most adverse effect of oil extraction on their lives. And so it sounds like all of the, basically all the profits are going to these guys at the top or just out of the country entirely to these fossil fuel industry executives who, you know, live in New York or something. Um, and so I, I was wondering if you could say, you know, do ordinary Nigerians, people who aren't connected to the fossil fuel industry, do they feel any sort of allegiance to the industry to continued extraction um and you know is that is that something which plays into the the work that you do in, in trying to sort of curtail the worst um excesses of of this industry well the, 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 if i get your question right and I'm, I'm responding to it now the, the majority of nigerians right like i said earlier get no benefit from the fossil fuel industry mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the majority of them are indifferent mm -hmm. they're indifferent whether they exist or not they are basically indifferent. But in a few instances, especially in those communities where oil is actually extracted, and you will recall that the oil in Nigeria is principally extracted from onshore and offshore fields located in the Niger Delta of Nigeria, which is about nine states out of 36 states. So all the oil comes from one region. And these people, the people who reside in this region, are the most adversely affected. Not only are they, not only do they suffer, um, um, they didn't get no benefit from oil, the oil industry whatsoever. But they also suffer certain levels of deprivation from the oil industry. For instance, the pollution that attends oil activities. And I must say that oil extraction in Nigeria happens in its most crude form, where
where gas flaring is still very routine, where oil spills happen on a daily basis, where, where, where the soils and waters get terribly polluted. So people who live in this region have gone past the age of indifference to oil extraction. They, are, they, 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 they have waged severally, they have waged different battles. For them, they want to see an end to oil extraction. For them, they need to, their argument is you need to leave the fossil fuel in the ground. And one thought ethnic nationalism that has felt this kind of drive is the Ogoni nation in Nigeria. You will recall that in, in the 90s, the Ogoni people formed an organization called MOSOP, mm-hmm. Movement for the Survival of Ogoni People, where they basically um, demanded a better deal from the Nigerian state from the oil that's extracted from the environment. That movement was, was met with very, very serious, um, very, very serious resistance by the Nigerian state in collaboration, of course, with Shell. I mean, there's evidence that it was in collaboration with Shell. Nine Ogonis, including Ken Sarawa, was killed. But the reality is that the arguments which the people of Ogoni presented back in those days still stands today. Oil has not been extracted from Ogoni land since the 90s up to now. They have stopped the oil industry from operating in that territory till now because they have come to the conclusion that it is not worth it. Mm. And their argument is resounding very strongly all around the Delta. And is the argument to leave the oil in the ground. Leave the oil in the ground because the instant the oil leaves the ground and comes out, it brings nothing but poverty, death, and misery. And the people are tired of that. Okay, and I'm, I'm wondering too if you could talk about the work that you're doing now, which, which seems to fall on a couple different lines. So one is, of course, against the fossil fuel industry itself, but another is against this privatization of the country's utilities um, and fighting for energy democracy. So I'm wondering, you know, what do you see as um, the balance here between uh, both fighting the sort of worst excesses of the fossil fuel industry, but also um, sort of building up real alternatives to, um, you know, give people power and and, uh, be able to turn on their lights, etc. Well, um, we are we are in terms of our struggle um, first around the fossil fuel industry. We, it's on it's on very many fronts, right? Because the problems with the fossil fuel industry poses is on very many many fronts, right? We battle the fossil fuel industry on account of the fact that they are contributing very dangerously to environmental pollution, including global warming. Do not forget that Nigeria still flares gas, and Niger Delta is the single most intense fight of greenhouse emissions on Earth. The single most mm-hmm. intense location of greenhouse emissions because, I mean, if you are flying into the city, I live in Patakot in the night, all you see are flares here and there. You know, from the sky, you see gas flares everywhere. Uh, gas is not being flared because there's no technology to do better, but because the kind of, because of the kind of disdain the oil industry, the oil companies have towards the people who live in that region without care for the safety, the life, the well-being of the people, the simply just, you know, keep flaring gas, right? So we battle them on issues like gas flaring. And of course, also, wherever the oil companies go, they live in their thread, misery, death, poverty, and all that, right? We battle them um, where they basically sack whole communities in order to continue um, extraction, where they pollute the water of the people, where they pollute their air and all that. So we battle them on those fronts. Then again, like I said, the Nigerian government is so terribly addicted to fossil energy, so terribly addicted to it, that it does not see the possibility of generating power for 170 million people, power for industry and industrialization without the fossil fuel industry. And so if you look at the Nigeria's uh, road, what they call the road map, the power road map, the road map to you know, sustainable power in Nigeria, you see it reoccurring over and over again that the last chunk of expected energy um, generation is going to be secured through fossil fuel, either gas or diesel. You know, and we're simply saying no, that we need to move from away from this age of dependence on fossil fuel, on dirty energy, to an age of cleaner energy, more 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 you know renewable energy, energy that is sustainable and not fossil fuel that the temp you know that is time bound that will that will finish at some point. We need to look for energy that is cleaner. And we need to manage and own this energy in a way that it is democratic, that every single citizen has got access to energy. So we look at energy from the point of view of a right, that citizens have got a right to power. They have got a right to energy that is clean, that is affordable. 
currently in Nigeria, the, big, the, 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 the energy we get mostly comes from hydro, hydro dam, you know, water hydro dam. And this energy has been so terribly privatized. In fact, we, can't, we cannot technically call that privatization. The government simply sold all power assets in the country to its friends and its cronies. People who have, who have no experience in the power sector whatsoever sold the power assets to them. And what this guy simply did is not add any single value. No new generation plants were established. No new transformers were purchased. No new lines were extended. You know, nothing whatsoever. No transmission lines were extended. Absolutely no value addition to the existing grid. But they simply increased the charges about tenfold. So in Nigeria, every other two, three, four months, what we see are hidden charges, fresh charges, criminal charges, and we have gone to court over and over again, demanding the court to pronounce these charges illegal. And that's the problem we have right now in Nigeria. That rather than move from to an age of power independence, where people get power as a right, you know, where people control their own power assets democratically, where the energy is cleaner and more sustainable, Nigeria is moving in reverse. It is moving to the to the to the a regime where power is generated in a dirty manner, where power pollutes the environment, where power is owned by a few, where power is unaffordable to the majority, where power is centrally controlled by private interest. And that's a major battle we are currently fighting in Nigeria. Wow. And, and you know, why did the government move to privatize? Um, I mean, it, it sounds like just bring in sort of companies to run whole parts of, of the utility sector. Well, because um, the... the, the the company, the, the public corporation that controlled power was very terribly managed. True, it was very terribly managed. Power supply was epileptic at the time, you know, very terribly managed, you know, and there was a lot of corruption and sincerity and criminality. The facts made that while there was all you know, power was more reliable at that time. Power was more affordable to the majority of Nigerians at that time. Right now, when power has shifted for over five years now to private hands, no, the power availability has not increased. It has instead reduced, significantly reduced, to the extent that people go for weeks without electricity. And on the other hand, the cost of the unavailable power has gone astronomically high. So we, we basically moved away from a system of public ownership to a system of private ownership, from a system of public ownership where power was at least available a bit and, and affordable to a system where it's hardly available and unaffordable. That's what we moved away from. We moved away from frying pan and jumped into the fire. That's mm. where we are currently. So privatizing power assets was not a solution because the reality is that what they call privatization was simply a sale of power assets to the same people who ruined the public power supply in the first place, who presided over it, you know, destroyed it corruptly. The same people went around and bought the same power assets where they have continued their state of corruption and their, and their destruction of the, of, the, of, the, of the power sector, their expropriation of Nigerians, they have simply continued it as private citizens and private enterprises right now without adding any new value to power assets. And so my question here is, you know, as, as someone who's working to, to sort of change all this and to make sure that there is something that looks like energy democracy um, in Nigeria, you know, who, uh, who do you appeal to? I mean, it sounds like uh, the, the government um, is, is largely um, sort of in, in cahoots with, the, with both the fossil fuel industry, it sounds like, with these private utility companies. Um, so what, a, what is sort of organizing an activism uh, around this look like? Where do you sort of direct your demands and, and what kind of pushback do you face? Well, um, the, the approaches we have used so far um, has been two. two, two. Uh, one has been through litigation. We have, at least on two different counts, um, gotten the courts in Nigeria to, 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 to declare the charges which the power companies uh, receive, what they charge Nigerians as illegal. First and foremost, we have been able to achieve that. Those charges have been declared illegal. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have also... Uh, we have also fought from, uh, from the point of view of mobilizing citizens to resist, you know, these charges. So in a city like Benin, for instance, we have successfully um, joined forces with society organizations there to resist increased charges 
and rather than get meter, we ask citizens to buy. I mean, if the power companies cannot respect the law of the land, the Nigerian law, the law of coming, I mean, the pronouncement of the court saying that what we charge is illegal, and they go ahead charging those 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 fees, we have told citizens that if they can't respect the court, then they don't have any right to respect their own rules. So you are free to bypass bypass the meters and connect directly to the grid. Power is, is a right, and citizens have done this. You know, they have bypassed the uh, the metering system and they take the power directly because the metering system in Nigeria doesn't even work. It doesn't work. There's something called estimated billing, right? So estimated billing is a system where you are not billed for what you consume, but you are billed for what the power company thinks you should have consumed. Mm. So if you live in a, in a large a large house of about five rooms perhaps, and you have been on holiday for the past one year, it doesn't matter. That house should be consuming a particular unit, so that's what you're being for. You come back in 10 years' time, you have got to pay it. These are charges that are fixed. You just have to pay them. You know, so you, we have all these criminal charges. And what we have told people to do is to not pay this, those charges, resist those charges, and in many instances, we have mobilized citizens for, for mass action to block the offices of the power holding company and make it impossible, impossible for them to carry out their operations. So, yes, there's a lot of civil resistance building up, but people, you know, they have, they have successfully kept the majority of Nigerians away from the struggle for, for more dependable energy. They have kept Nigerians away from that with the blackmail of, listen, the power system is going to get better. It should take us a while to fix it. It's going to get better. Just hold on. Do not forget that the, the, the public sector was also bad. You know, so Nigerians have been sold the dummy that privatization is the only thing that can save the power sector. That privatization is the only model with which people get power supplied to their houses. It's only through privatization of this very nasty format that Nigerians can get power. And that's that a blackmail. That's certainly a lie. We have got companies, in fact, we have, we have got companies in Nigeria, in Nigeria, public assets that got privatized and they simply died. The Nigerian, you know, Nigerian, what is called the Nigerian Airways, which was the, the, the publicly owned um, tra air transport service, right? It was privatized and it died. Hmm. Nitel, the Nigerian Telecommunications Company, was a publicly owned asset. It was privatized and it died. And there are so many, many, many more happening. Right now, we see a situation, and that's what we're trying to explain to Nigeria when we campaign. We see a situation where Nigerians will be milked dry by the power companies, and then the, and then the power assets will deteriorate. They will not be maintained, and they will simply die off. Just like every other thing that was privatized has done. You know, we, we, we have no problem with other players coming into the field, with other companies coming in to provide uh, electricity if they can. We have no problem with that. But that does not mean you should sell assets that belongs to the public. We think that the government should maintain the corporation that provides electricity while opening avenues for other players to come in, for communities to generate their own power, while subsidizing the ability of people to get wind turbines, while stopping the power, the energy of this line community can reach their own power and distribute. Currently in Nigeria, it is criminal for you to do that. You cannot generate and transmit power, you know, without um, an approval by the government of Nigeria. It is criminal. You can't do that. So the right to generate and transmit power lies with these companies who are ripping Nigerians off. And that's people who have been trying to tell Nigerians since. And I'm wondering, too, it sounds like, you know, the, the struggle both for uh, a more democratic energy system and, and to make power a public right um, is also a fight sort of for the public sector and for a more democratic public sector. And so, you know, do you in, in your kind of day to day work find yourself working with other um, organizations or movements which are, are fighting back against privatization on other fronts as well? Yes, we do. Yeah, certainly we do. We um we, we collaborate with quite a lot of organizations. We have, we have found ourselves collaborating with the Manufacturers Association of Nigeria, um, who are also at the receiving end of the very um, um, negative energy policy in Nigeria. They are at the receiving end, at the very negative receiving end of the increasing cost of electricity, increasing cost of access to electricity. Manufacturing in Nigeria has basically been you know, ground to a halt simply because there's no power supply. So yeah, we're in, we're in, we're in liaison with them and we work very actively with them. But also in liaison with very many civil society organizations who feel angry about this. We are in liaison with other companies, other private, in fact, private individuals feel this pain a lot more. Medium, 
um, medium-scale industries who simply cannot operate without electricity. We live in a country in Nigeria where public power supply, the one that comes from what we call NEPA, the Nigeria Electric Power Authority, and whatever name it goes under at the moment, right? We live in a country where public power is considered the backup when it comes. Your real power supply is your generator, the electrical generator that runs on gasoline. That humongous, noisy, and very dirty stuff. Very expensive. And of course, you know, Nigeria recently doubled the price of, um, of, of, of gasoline, making it even more expensive to generate power privately. You know, yeah. So we, we collaborate a lot with citizens and these organizations and, and manufacturers, associations, and all that who are equally angry about what's happening in the, in the power sector, in the energy sector in Nigeria. But they have not quite come around to understanding that energy democracy is the way to go. It's where the world is moving. And that clean energy is where the world is moving. They are at the point where they do not care what kind of energy it is, whether it is clean or dirty, as long as it's energy. They are at the point where they don't care how the energy is managed, whether it is centrally managed or through private um, um, private corporations. They do not really care. All they want to do is turn up the switch, you know, and have power supply to their homes, which currently does not exist. But we know, we know, but if you settle that problem of power availability that is dirty, you will still have to fight that cost in the next 10, 15 years. So why don't we all put everything and fight it together for a more just energy system, which is clean, which is democratically owned, and affordable to, for the majority of citizens. And that's the agenda we've been trying to, you know, mobilize um, our eyes on in Nigeria. And and where do trade unions fit into all of this? I was I was reading a, a report uh, on on this privatization, and it, it said that the the companies who are who are now taking over power lines um, have also been uh, sort of busting unions and and trying to to keep unionized workers out. So, um, do you also work with trade unions, and and kind of where do they play into this whole this whole constellation? Well, we, we have had to work with trade unions in the past. Um, when we started this program around energy democracy a couple of years, specifically um, work with energy workers union, especially those that were laid off. But the reality is, is that the, that the labor the labor unions in Nigeria, is really, I mean, they are relatively weak, and mm-hmm. um, they are not they are not known to have fought for the cause of their members. When the power, when when these private individuals work of power assets, one of their first actions was to lay off staff. You know, so the majority of people who had jobs in those in that in the power sector were laid off, and the idea was lay off as many of these people as possible, and um, recruit new people on con- on a, what they call a contract basis. Now, the employ people on a contract basis when you need to cut their salaries to half, when you need to deny them any other kind of benefit which comes with job security, like any kind of insurance policy, any kind of uh, pension, any kind of uh, leave allowance, and all that, right? So you have to say that you casualize them, to make them casual staff who work on basically a temporary basis, who can be sacked without any qualms, and who are not allowed to unionize because they are contract staff. Mm-hmm. They are not allowed to unionize. That's what they did immediately. And, and the reality is this, that when this happened, right, we tried to form alliance with labor to respond very quickly to it. But what labor was more interested in at that time was to get a better payment deal, you know, severance pay for their staff. That was what they were more interested in. Help to keep them in the job. But to get a severance pay for the staff. And, and they, did, they did get some kind of severance pay for these workers. And energy sector, by that action alone, in the energy sector, the whole concept of unionism was destroyed. And so there's nobody to even ally with to find the power companies. And the other section, the other wings of of any of, of the workers' union is simply not interested in the issue of power. They are only interested when um, the cost of access to electricity is increased. They know that it affects them directly, then they can start campaigning. But for the kind of things we're interested in, because we're interested in things beyond the cost of electricity, we're interested in how it is generated, how clean is it, of what sense does it mean for us to generate electricity that serves 170 million Nigerians adequately that pollutes the environment in return. Of what use do we have of electricity that 
um, that divides our society, that, that makes one section weak and the other, that entrenches a capitalist system of exploitation. of what use do we have of such energy? You know, so we ask the deeper questions. And the reality is that the workers' union in Nigeria are not asking those tough, deep-rooted, fundamental questions. They are more interested currently in the bread and butter issues. That leads me to my next question, which is that at the same time that uh, specifically the Niger River Delta is this intensely carbon-emitting area, uh, it's also an area that, that's been impacted by climate change itself and, and the sort of stages of that. Um, and so, you know, is there a point at which um, climate change does or has it already sort of become a bread and butter issue um, for folks? I mean, for trade unions, but also just for, for ordinary people. Well... Yeah, of course, the Niger Delta in Nigeria and the, and the, and the northeast, the northern region of Nigeria, um, has been the most, I mean, have experienced, have experienced climate change. First hand, the effects of global warming, first hand. In 2012, there was a massive flooding in Nigeria, massive flood, and sea levels rose to something close to what, 20 feet, about 20 feet or thereabouts. All communities were submerged, an entire farming season was eroded and all that. It's not that international agencies and um, emergency response agencies stepped in to provide them um, some kind of humanitarian aid. It would have been a catastrophe that left to famine, basically. An entire farming season disappeared in three weeks of flooding. Mm. And this was a clear, clear, I mean, like in, the, in, in monitoring that flood disaster in 2012, I went to the field um, and I saw firsthand what had happened. And I spoke to an octogenarian, a man who was, um, who, was, who was above 80. And he said in his lifetime, he had lived in this community his entire life, and he had never seen flood disaster that high. Mm. He had never seen anything like that in his entire existence. He, had, he hadn't seen it before. In 80 years, there hadn't been any such disaster. And so in living memory, we hadn't seen that. And we know that it was it's a strange occurrence, and it is tied directly to climate change. You know, and sea levels are gradually rising. The Niger Delta is principally riverine. And you enter, you get into your boat to drive to the next community, and you see shorelines, you know, shoreline with trees and all that caving into the river. The, the water level getting higher and higher and eating deeper and deeper into the mainland, into the towns, into the villages and all that. That's a clear case. We're having communities disappearing. As, it, as, a re, as a result of climate change, global warming. And in the north, of course, Nigeria has been in the news for, um, for a militant insurgency called um, Boko Haram. This is a sense in which Boko Haram is a manifestation mm-hmm. of global warming. And I've said, this, I've said this elsewhere, I've said this over and over again. Why is it that in Borno State, in Meidugri, a place that has the most modest form of uh, Islam, a place known for um, the lowest level of Islamic militancy, mm. is also also turned out to be the best place of this very fundamental ideology, this murderous ideology that has led to the death of thousands of people. Why did it happen there? If you now look at it from a climate point of view, you will find out that the northeast in Nigeria is also where the Chad is located. In the last 50 years, the Lake Chad has shrunk to a twentieth of its original size. Mm-hmm. Now, when the, the chart was at its fullest, this was a fishing hub. It held aquatic abundant abundance of aquatic life. Okay, so you have fishermen from Cameroon, from Nigeria, Republic, from Chad, from Nigeria, all fishing there. You know, and in Nigeria, we see a lot of fishes coming from Lake Chad. You know, it was a thriving business place. Lake Chad also had mangroves around it that allowed the cows and cattle to feed, you know, that was good vegetation for the cattle to feed. It was a source of irrigation for farmers. It was a major fishing hub and all that. So it was a hub of productive activity happening around there. The communities there were lively and rich, and economic activity was thriving exceedingly in the Lake Chad region. But as the Lake Chad shrunk yearly, it held less potential for people who depended on it for their survival. And so people who were formerly headsmen who grew cattle, they had to leave or stop growing cattle, stop rearing cattle rather. They had to, they had to, 
you know, seize their trade. People who fished stopped being fishermen mm. and started doing something else. You know, we also have a situation where people who depended on the lake chart for irrigation or farming stopped, you know, um, farming. The area became desolate. And if it became desolate, it became unproductive. And if it became unproductive, it could no longer sustain life. And as it could no longer sustain life, the people who depended on it became destitute, became hopeless, and they were more susceptible to radical uh, uh, indoctrination. And that's why Boko Haram could grow there, because it found in the Lake Chad region and the areas around, around the Lake Chad people who were so hopeless that they could buy any fundamentalist ideology. Every, anything could appeal to them. They could easily be mobilized for little or nothing to become uh, to join a murderous insurgent army. Yes. So there's an extent to which Boko Haram is a clear manifestation of climate change. I'm not the only one who has made this assessment. A few other people have come to this conclusion. You know, so we live in a situation where where Nigeria, on the one hand, is a key contributor to climate change through. Um, emissions through gas flowing, through oil extraction activities were contributing principally to global warming. The 1990 Nigeria is the single most intense spot of greenhouse emissions. On the one hand, on the one hand, that is Nigeria. On the other hand, Nigeria is also the biggest sufferer, the most impacted country, one of the most impacted countries as a result of global warming, warming as a result of climate change. So we are inadvertently with our own oil, our own crude oil extraction, destroying the fabric of our own society, destroying our environment, and you know, basically um, destroying everything that we stand for, eroding our source of livelihood, causing conflict and crisis within ourselves as a result of, I mean, through the process which we are contributing to, which is climate change. Hmm. And, and I know you were in Paris this past December for, for the COP21 uh, climate talks. And so I'm wondering, how does that show up there? Both the fact that uh, the Nigerian government, it sounds like, has a, a big interest in, in keeping the fossil fuel industry there and extracting. Um, and the fact that, that this is a country which is, is being tremendously impacted by, by the effects of climate change. So, so how did the Nigerian delegation um, show up in, in Paris? And, you know, are you hopeful about, about what came out of that? Um, what, what do you think the gaps are? Well, absolutely nothing. So I think for the Nigerian, for the Nigerian delegation, it was nothing but the jamboree. Um, it was two weeks holiday. Mm. As far as I'm concerned for the Nigerian delegation, no concrete uh, plans were made, nothing strong. But the Nigerian government did present a plan, its own emissions reduction plan, um, at, that, at that Paris conference, and it's available online. I have read it. And it's actually very shameful that the Nigerian government proposed to have gas flaring ended in Nigeria in 2030. <laughs> 2030. And so we are in for gas flaring for another 14 years. So the people of the Niger Delta we will keep breathing this very hazardous chemical. You know, this monoxide being burnt daily for the next 14 years. We will live with this pollution for the next 14 years. Now we're not living with it. Because there is no solution to the problem. Because we're not even speaking gas flaring because it is not technologically possible to extract crude differently. No, we're living with it because the oil companies are too greedy to implement strategies that cut emissions because they think that it will cut also their profits. And that's why we are forced to live with greenhouse emissions. That's why we are forced to do so up till now. And I think that it is, um, it is, it is completely and totally heartless that the Nigerian government will present a plan that keeps gas flaring in place in 2030. And the reality is this, that if you know the history of um, um, gas flaring in Nigeria, you will know that even the act of gas flaring is illegal. It's illegal because the court in Nigeria has declared it illegal. Friends of the Earth, uh, Nigeria and Environmental Rights Action took the issue, and some host communities took the issue of gas flaring to court, and the one in judgment from the from federal high court in Nigeria that declared gas flaring illegal. But since then, in 2005, I think it was, up till now, about 11 years after, gas flaring is still very routine practice. So we are, what we're dealing with here is something that is illegal in the first place. It's illegal. And if you read the history of Nigeria's relationship with gas flaring, we have had what they call flare-out dates. That's a date to the end gas flaring. 
we've had over five of these flare-out dates. And every single time the target approaches, the government is forced to move it further and introduce paltry fines. The oil companies are more interested in paying those very small fines and charging the cost of the fines as part of their production costs that are actually ending gas flaring. What the oil companies are interested in, what the oil companies are scared of doing, rather, what they are scared of doing with gas flaring is to establish the refining plant that actually takes associated gas and refines it for use at home as cooking gas or whatever. That is what they do not want to do. That extra expense is what they are not interested in doing because it's too expensive for them to do, because it is too economically unviable for them to do, because they consider this place as, um, as a gas field. They can just take whatever they need and destroy the rest. And um, yeah, the response of the Nigerian government through its commitments in Paris is completely and totally unacceptable and inadequate. It doesn't address the concern, the health concerns of people who are affected every day by gas flaring. It does not address the needs of the climate, which is action right now. Neither does it address the economic requirements of ending gas flaring in Nigeria. It addresses nothing. Only the needs of the oil company to keep flaring gas for the next 14 years. So I, I think my last question would be, you know, where where do you go from here with uh, an international agreement that is totally ill-equipped to actually take on most people's concerns around climate and energy, um, and also with with a government that's just you know very highly connected with um, with fossil fuels and, and and with privatizing interests. So yeah, what what what's next? What what do you see as sort of the path toward um, toward energy democracy, toward curtailing the fossil fuel industry, um, toward yeah, creating a, a, a better a, a better society and a better Nigeria? Well, the, the, I'll start with two of the the oil industry in Nigeria. I think more and more Nigerians are becoming aware. Um, they are becoming more aware of their rights within the framework of oil extraction. And Nigerians are making it more expensive for oil extraction to happen, more expensive, more environmentally expensive to the extent that, of course, you know about the UNEP report, the United Nations Environment Program um, on Ogoni land that declared that that area was an environmental disaster zone and it should take nothing less than one billion naira, one billion dollars rather, and a period of about 25 to 30 years to get that mess cleaned up. That cleanup has actually, well, started theoretically. The process to get it started has started. And um, it will cost a one, one billion US dollar, which Shell will need to pay a huge chunk of. You know, and more and more communities in the Delta are becoming conscious of this that the mess which these companies made is coming back to haunt them. Benzene, the cancer causing agent, was discovered in the water, particularly in Ugoniland drink, 900 times ab- above six levels. 900 times. Mm. Benzene is a, is, a, is, a, is a chemical that causes cancer. This is not me saying it. This is not Ken Henshaw saying it. This is not a doctor in Nigeria. This mm. is the United Nations Environment Program saying it. That's what they found. I was in a place called Nsisi Oken Ogale, which was the location where this benzene was found in 2011. And I got somebody to turn on a tap for me. And he did. And you could smell the strong stench of gasoline coming out of people's tap. It's very strong stench of gasoline coming. And when you read about these things, you know, um, it's different from when you actually see it and you smell the stench of gasoline coming out. And people has, have lived in this polluted place. People have drank this polluted water continuously for a decade at least. You know, so other communities in Nigeria are becoming aware of just how devastated the region has become. That's how much their lives have been cut short. Things are beginning to make sense to the people right now. You drive into a community like Bodo in the Niger Delta, and what you see are what we call burial posters, okay, which are posters showing the death, obituary announcements on the wall, based on the wall, and you hardly see anybody up to the age of 50, 60. Between 18 and 40, they're all dying, unknown causes. It's beginning to make sense. The causes are becoming clear. We now know that their death is related clearly, directly, to fossil fuel extraction and the pollution it leaves in its trail. What we have paid for in the Niger Delta on account of oil extraction is becoming very clear to everyone in Niger Delta now. And so it's going to become more expensive for the oil companies to carry on their business here. I see a situation where there will be more and more protests against oil extraction, that it will be just too expensive for them to extract, and this industry will begin to decline. And coupled, of course, with the fact that the 
industry is becoming increasingly less attractive with the fall in crude oil prices. And on the front of this energy democracy, what we see is a situation where Nigerians also are getting tired of the fact that they pay so much for power which they do not receive. When Nigerians begin to realize that energy is a right, it isn't a privilege, it's a right people should have. It is important as other fundamental rights of individuals and citizens. People have a right to have their own power. What I see is a situation where energy democracy will not be gained through a policy of government. It will instead be achieved through the struggles of people. I see a situation where Nigerians, especially those living at the community level, who have been completely cut off from power supply, who don't depend on electricity from the national grid of any sort, whom the government and the private companies who now control the power sector have no interest in ever getting connected to the power grid. Those areas do not pay high bills. They cannot afford to pay these charges. I see a situation where those people will begin to create energy collectives by themselves, start generating and distributing their own electricity for their own benefit. And I see a situation where that kind of move will begin to spread even to the cities. And while the the big energy companies remain with their expensive energy. People will form clusters and cooperatives, generating their own power and managing it in a very democratic way. I see a situation where the Nigerian nation will go greener, will go more renewable, and will certainly go more uh, um, cleaner. And I see a situation where the country will, will progress along those lines. I think that's a really, a really good note to end on. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm grateful. I think it's time to call it, both because we've reached the end of what I think is a pretty tight narrative arc, and also because it's about 195 degrees in our recording studio, Celsius. Malarkey! It's just 195 degrees Fahrenheit. So, uh, next episode. I'll be speaking with activists on both coasts about race, housing, and climate change. No tree planting on the agenda for that one. And in the meantime, please tweet us your questions, complaints, concerns, comparisons of Daniel to Joe Biden to hashtag hotbotheredclimate. Uh, and also, thank you to Eric Hoffner for the Twitter suggestion to do an episode on farming and climate change. That's a great call and is definitely going to happen soon. And in the meantime, stay hot and stay bothered.